Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. How many varieties of bitters are stocked in your bar? Once upon a time, there were only two choices. Our beloved local Peixot bitters and Angostura, originally crafted in Angostura, Venezuela. Today, there are literally hundreds of varieties of bitters, a dizzying selection, to say the least. One of the biggest players in the bitters field is New Orleans' own El Guapo. We'll take a tour of their manufacturing facility and learn how El Guapo's president, Krista Cotton, did a pandemic pivot that grew her business over 800% last spring. Then, we'll take a deep dive into a Sazerac cocktail, the official drink of New Orleans, whose flavor relies heavily on Peixot's bitters with Tim McNally, whose new book focuses on that single topic. Before we tour the Sazerac House, a multimedia experience that not only demystifies the cocktail's ingredients, but also acts as a distillery for Sazerac rye, another of the cocktail's most essential ingredients. We're exploring the sweet taste of bitter's success on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Krista Cotton, and I'm the founder and CEO of New Orleans Beverage Group, which is the parent company of El Guapo, New Orleans' contemporary craft cocktail bitter syrups and mixers company. Since the pandemic first forced restaurants and bars to close or scale back last year, many family-owned businesses, especially smaller ones, have struggled, while others have found creative ways to sustain themselves. Following a steep drop in sales in March 2020, Krista Cotton of New Orleans Beverage Group reacted with major changes to her company's business model. Her strategy, combined with changing circumstances and a little luck, helped the family business not only survive, but thrive. Today, their El Guapo line of cocktail bitters and syrups have become so popular that the business has outgrown its production facility on Chapatula Street, where it moved in 2019. And we thought at the time that this would give me three to five years to sort of figure out the recipes, the distribution, all the stuff, and then we would move. Then COVID hit, we changed our business model, our sales skyrocketed, and we outgrew the building in 10 months. <laughs> so now we are looking at other real estate, but we're working with what we've got right now. This is what we've got, so this is what we're doing. Louisiana Eats met Krista at the El Guapo facility, where she gave us a tour of their tightly packed operation. Krista Cotton, superwoman, I am so tickled to be here with you at El Guapo. I believe you were born with an entrepreneurial spirit in your blood. 
your dad must be a really <laughs> interesting man because he just happened into being a distiller, didn't he? That is correct. So my father is a character. Everyone who meets him loves him. He's larger than life. You know, when I was five years old, he bought his first shopping center. And then one turned into five and that turned into 10 and 15. And by the time I graduated from high school, I was 17 and he had 75 different uh, shopping centers all across the Southeast. My dad and uh, his company owned the Rouse's on Chapatulas, which is just a few blocks away from where we're standing right now. A lot of the different shopping centers on veterans, the uh, Rouse's on airline, just a lot of different properties, about 7.5 million square feet of real estate. So that was in 2005, and I knew that I had the entrepreneurial spirit. I caught the bug early. I knew this is what I was going to do. So I wanted to go to Tulane, but I ended up going to Auburn because my dad's uh, real estate headquarters was about 45 minutes away in Columbus, Georgia. So I went to Auburn, knew that I was going to work for my parents, and my freshman year, Katrina hit. So I ended up spending my first two years at Auburn helping my parents uh, rehab coastal properties in New Orleans and then all across the Gulf Coast that had been decimated by the storm. After some of the properties were opening again and New Orleans was getting back on its feet, the credit crisis happened in 2007-2008. My dad was nervous about the financial situation and decided that as a family we needed to diversify and not just be so heavily reliant on the real estate business. So he saw an article in the Wall Street Journal about a craft distiller in Atchison, Kansas named Seth Fox uh, who had just started a craft distillery and it was one of the first ones in the country. And he told all of his friends, you know, this is it, we're gonna open a craft distillery. And everyone in our circle said, you know, your dad's having a midlife crisis, he's not really gonna do this. But he, <laughs> he got into his Lincoln Town car and he drove himself to Kansas and he hired Seth as a consultant and he did. So when I was at Auburn, I spent my last two years really helping open this distillery. So learning about licensing, coding, distribution. So when I graduated, we had this craft distillery. It was finally in production. We were in three states. And I decided that my parents weren't really listening to me in the marketing and advertising sense. And that's really what I was really interested in. So I did some interviews down here and found a job with Trumpet Advertising. And then this opportunity for El Guapo fell in my lap. At Krista, El Guapo Bitters was not originally your brainchild. How did you Correct. come to have El Guapo? So there was a bartender in the French Quarter who had started dabbling in bitters making. And as the brand grew, he realized that he didn't have a business background. He didn't have a scientific or manufacturing background. And he knew who I was and he approached me about buying it. And at first I said, you know, no way, I'm really busy. I don't know if that would work out, but he gave me his financials and I showed that to my parents and my dad said, if you don't do this, I'm going to. And that's really the push that I needed to buy the brand. So instead of getting his LLC, I bought the trademark and I started my own LLC, rolled those assets up into my company. And then I immediately rebranded from El Guapo Bitters into just El Guapo. Uh, because at that point we were going to diversify into syrups. We've now done mixers. We're looking at other opportunities for brand extensions and product lines in the future. So we started working on that in March of 2017. We actually closed the deal in July of 2017. And here we are a little bit more than three and a half years in. And you know now we're tripling our revenue year over year for the second year running. 
Well, your daddy must be very proud of you. Yeah, he is. He's very proud. He has six kids, and I'm the only one that has gone off and started my own thing. I think at first he was really nervous, but yes, he's, he loves telling people about it. He loves seeing it, uh, but it's fun to sort of see the roles reverse a little bit, and I know that my parents are super proud. So let's take a tour. Okay, let's go. This is our inventory room, and we had envisioned it as an inventory room, but we thought it would hold everything. It does not. Well, you know, just to give people in their minds a visual, we're just standing in what was basically like your shotgun double yep, on exactly. top of Tulis. Exactly. We're not talking much <laughs> space at no. all. So we went from a thousand square feet to this whole building is about 3000 square feet, but it, I mean, it's very small. And from what we're doing, it's actually like kind of a miracle that we're able to do the volume that we're doing out of here. So all the inventory that won't fit in this room is actually just stacked on the, in the hallway. So if you're in here, we call, we used to call this tonic town. It's where we kept all the tonic because it, in COVID, um, everyone, the, well, the president at the time said that if you took malaria medication and the, and the active ingredient in malaria medication is the same active ingredient in tonic, it's quinine. In COVID, the tonic sales went through the roof. We had one day at the early April where we sold $44,000 worth of tonic in one day because there was a press conference saying that if oh. you ingested this product, you would either not catch COVID or it could possibly cure you. So we were just, all we were doing is making as many batches of tonic as we possibly could to just keep up with the sales. It's a small space, so this is the best we could do. <laughs> what a bizarre reason bizarre. to have your business grow so we put a disclaimer on there and we did get oh. hundreds of inquiries about that specifically and we just said you know we're not medical doctors we, we this is for cocktails only so um but you know it did get our name out there in some way and then we've continued to grow since so well whatever it takes girlfriend <laughs> yep <laughs> we already got the understanding about the bizarrity of the tonic water and the Correct. quinine but what was really at the heart of this amazing growth that your company saw in 2020 while most people were swimming backwards you were bravely forging ahead we kind of distribute our products in three ways we do retail which is through our website and amazon we self-distribute to states where we don't yet have a distribution relationship and then we do distribution so before covid we were really focused on growing our distribution to get on more shelves at liquor stores behind more bars and restaurants nationally that was our biggest focus and i won uh, i got my woman in business certification and i won a supplier diversity deal uh, with costco in 2019 and before COVID, we had scheduled road shows, which are like the openings of your products in a Costco store, um, both here in New Orleans. We were going to Lafayette, Baton Rouge. We had three stores in Houston, two in Dallas. I mean, we were we were going. And the weekend before the first road show, I was in Charleston for Charleston Food and Wine. And my phone rang when I was at dinner with my mom. And it was my Costco buyer. And she said, you know, I really hate to do this to you, but we're pulling your supplier diversity deal temporarily because we need the space for toilet paper. And at first I didn't believe her. I was freaking out. This was before everyone thought COVID was gonna be a big problem. People still thought, you know, if we do shut down, it'll be two weeks, it won't be that big of a thing. And it really, you know, threw us a curveball. We had all of this inventory that you have to move. So I got home from Charleston and the next weekend, all of our independent bar and restaurant partners across the country started closing. So we found ourselves without our two biggest sources of revenue within a week, 
to 10 days, maybe. Um, so we switched our business model and we thought if people have to stay at home, people are going to be drinking. So we switched to focus on direct to consumer, both through our website and Amazon. And that happened, you know, ahead of the tonic boom. But that really is what put us on the map. And we immediately noticed when we made that switch that sales skyrocketed. So the business model basically switched before COVID. It was 65% wholesale and distribution. And then 35% was this direct to consumer. It almost exactly switched to be the opposite of that, where the majority of our business was direct to consumer. We think in 2021, it'll be more 50 50. But another thing that came out of that is trying to help our restaurant partners that were struggling. It just, it didn't really sit well with me and didn't seem right that we were doing so well while we were watching the business owners that had championed us from the very beginning and used our products behind the bar as they were doing so poorly. So we reached out to a few different contacts and we really started working on either introducing people to different co-packers if they couldn't make the product. But in other cases like Commander's Palace, for instance, you know, they have a long history with cocktails and they wanted to take their cocktail book and bottle some of those recipes to be able to sell them. And we knew that that was something that we could do. So we started working with T. Martin and coming up with different combinations and recipes uh, that were a part of their In the Land of Cocktails book. And we came up with four different SKUs and they've been massively successful. And we're working with other chefs to do sort of the same thing. But I I really ascribe to that mantra of rising tides raise all ships and whatever we can do to help our partners make it through this period to get to the other side when tourism comes back and things are okay is really important to me and all of that really came along in a way that it wouldn't have if COVID hadn't hit because it, it just made it more apparent to me how important community is and the chefs that have supported us we want to be there in the same way for them that they were there for us early on. Well, Krista, thank you so much for welcoming us into your little spot. I can't wait till you expand and I can come visit again. I know we'll have to do a part two, and I'm so grateful to you all for coming. Thank you. I know in COVID times, it feels like we never get to see each other. So being able to see someone in person is really exciting for me, too. So thank you. That was Krista Cotton founder and CEO of New Orleans Beverage Group, the parent company of El Guapo. Coming up next, we dive into the history of the Sazerac cocktail with author Tim McNally. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. 
1838, New Orleans pharmacist Antoine Amade Peychaud was purportedly crafting medicine when he combined his personal bitters concoction with readily available French brandy, serving it to his clientele at his Royal Street Apothecary in New Orleans. That combination eventually became New Orleans' official cocktail, the Sazerac. Tim McNally is the author of a new book dedicated to the history of that famous drink. Tim is the wine and spirits editor and a feature writer for New Orleans Magazine, as well as host of the daily Dine, Wine, and Spirits show on WGSOAM. Tim's first experience with the Sazerac was at Antoine's restaurant, where the Mardi Gras crew of Hermes would toast with the famous drink before lunch every year on the Friday before Mardi Gras. And it took me a long time to figure out that it wasn't just a Mardi Gras drink. When I started to do the research on Sazerac, which was many years ago, long before the book was even uh, on my radar, I was intrigued with, first of all, the mechanics of putting the Sazerac cocktail together properly. Not many cocktails have mechanics. You know, you put some ice in a shaker and throw a little booze in there and some citrus juice and a little sugar and shake it up and then serve it out. That's not how the Sazerac is done at all. The Sazerac takes a moment to fix, as you well know, Poppy, to do it properly. You fill a glass with ice and you set that aside and let that glass chill down. And then you get into the addition of ingredients to another glass. You take the absinthe and put it at the bottom of a glass, toss the glass up in the air, twirl it so the absinthe coats the glass. Then you pour out the excess absinthe and you start putting the other ingredients into the glass. And then you set it over uh, into the glass that you've had ice in and you've got a chilled glass on your hand ready to receive the Sazerac final product. Well, it's really more of a ceremony. It it truly yeah. is. It's a yeah. it is a special occasion in and of itself. And one of the things I loved about your book was the way you personalized Antoine Amadie Peychaud. Tell us about uh, Mr. Peychaud and his particulars. Well, his family uh, they were from Haiti. Uh, they were from the French Caribbean. His dad was also a scientist, more or less, and they came to New Orleans to uh, assist with agriculture, and he took an interest in becoming a pharmacist. Now, at that time, pharmacists were finally licensed. Anybody could be a pharmacist, but if you had a license, you were something very special. He then uh, purchased this building where he put his uh, pharmacy in the 400 block of Royal Street, right in the middle of the French Quarter. And uh, today that is a used gun store, historic gun shop. But that is where Peychaud had his pharmacy and uh, people would come in. It was very unusual in those days. In fact, it never happened that a cocktail had a name. That's another thing that makes Sazerac so different is that you went into a bar and had their cocktail, but it didn't need to be named. That's what you went into the bar to get. That was their cocktail. And uh, Pecho named his cocktail out of one of the main ingredients, which was cognac that he used. Sazerac Fogéfi cognac was a very popular, not high end, but just a very popular common cognac of the day. 
And that's where the drink actually got its name from, interestingly. Interestingly, it has kept that name, even though along the way, all the way to today, cognac is not a part of the drink from the way many people prepare it. It's only recently that the Sazerac cognac, which is still a family operation in the cognac region of France, it's only recent that that cognac has returned to us as a real product. I have to say a Sazerac made with cognac is a lot more mellow and perhaps um, easily drinkable than one of the rye whiskey, more typical concoctions. And that's one of the things that interested me because back in the middle to late 1800s, 1880s, uh, there was a phylloxera epidemic in France. It was a, it's a root louse that destroys the vine, gets in the soil, sucks at the roots of uh, the tendrils of the vine and uh, takes away all of the sweet juices off the vine. Eventually the vine dies. And they had that epidemic in France in the late 1880s. We here in New Orleans and also in Paris were accustomed to cognac and other wines, all of which went off the market. So we here in New Orleans substituted a product that we had a lot of, and that was rye whiskey coming down the river from Kentucky and Tennessee. So that went into our version of the Sazerac, but the Sazerac name did not change. And then a few years later, uh, when we had the uh, absinthe misunderstanding, and it always was that, absinthe didn't cause anybody to cut ears off or didn't cause hallucinations. Absinthe is a very high alcoholic spirit, but it doesn't drive you crazy. But nevertheless, uh, the PR people that work for various wineries in France wanted to get their wines back in the public domain. And here we were enjoying absinthe uh, here in New Orleans. So they then went on a tear uh, to make absinthe, quote, illegal. And they thought they had done it. And everybody else thought they had done it, too. But in truth, the technical aspect of it, absinthe was never illegal, um, but it wasn't allowed. So all along the way, the Sazerac cocktail lost its core ingredient, and then it lost its side ingredient and never changed its name. It's wild. It kept on going. I found that fascinating. Now, one of the only, only true original ingredients in an absinthe cocktail is Peychaud's bitters. And, you know, that's hardly surprising because one of the amazing facts I learned in your book was, and I quote from the book, by 1853, Peixot was making more income from bitters than from his pharmaceutical services. Now, I had no idea about that. That was news to me. Well, he, uh, he hit on something that everybody thought was great, and then he, again— I, I love to have met this guy as a marketer. I thought that what an amazing guy to be a pharmacist. He's as good a marketer as anybody ever was. So he established the brand name of this cocktail, of his bitters, none of which had ever been done before. And, and then he lived around the corner. He lived on, on St. Louis, right around the corner from his apothecary shop. And then a couple of American entrepreneurs saw the potential in the drink and they purchased the rights to the drink from him. 
and they moved the, the public house down into the 300 block of uh, Royal Street, where Bevelo uh, is today with their light outlet. And it goes all the way through to Exchange Alley. So it's, a, it's on Royal and Exchange Alley, both sides of the building. The Sazerac really got its um, big boost when the Sazerac Bar got its name. Well, the Sazerac became a, a kind of a generic uh, cocktail. And uh, the Sazerac Bar paid the people who owned the rights to the name Sazerac in order to call their bar Sazerac. The Sazerac Bar, which today is in the uh, Roosevelt Hotel, that isn't where it happened at all. They just said, well, there's a good name for a bar, uh, but it's going to cost us a few bucks. But that, that's, that is an amazing bar. It is. And as we all know, we've spent more than one moment in that bar, huh, Bobby? It's a must-do in New Orleans. Absolutely. It is that. It is that. And you go in and have a Sazerac and or a Ramos Gin Fizz. Neither one were invented there, but they both do a good job in making them. Well, thank you, Tim. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. And next time we gather, let's do it over a Sazerac. I'm all over it. You name the time and I'll tell you the place. That was Tim McNally, author of The Sazerac. Now that we've gotten a taste of the iconic drink, coming up next, we'll get a tour of the Sazerac House, a three-story interactive museum for historians and cocktail lovers alike. Located at the intersection of Canal and Magazine Streets in New Orleans, the historic Sazerac House is an elegant, Italianate-style building erected in the 1960s. The grand structure sat vacant for over three decades until 2017, when the Sazerac Company began renovation to make it the new home place for their company. Today, it holds their head offices, an event space, retail shop, micro-distillery, and three floors of what they call a spirited experience. Featuring life-size videos, virtual reality bartenders, and interactive displays, the Sazerac House is a whimsical booze museum that would make Walt Disney proud. It presents the story of New Orleans cocktails as told through the Sazerac Company's own brands, a story that takes us back to the 19th century. I am Rhiannon Enlil, the experienced team leader at Sazerac House. So here we have the very start of your spirited experience. So welcome. Thank you. Please take a spot on a floor cling and I'll introduce you a little bit to what this room is and the importance of this being the start of our journey together. Against the back wall, we have two important exhibits that explain coffeehouse culture of New Orleans in the 1800s, as well as pharmacies and apothecaries in New Orleans in the 1800s. 
because both of those words, we now have different definitions for them. We know coffee houses, go work on my laptop, get a cup of joe, maybe read the paper. But in New Orleans back then, a coffee house was a sophisticated place for drinking. We had bars and saloons and taverns, but a coffee house was where you would go if you wanted to conduct business and network and have fancy drinks, essentially what we would think of today as cocktails. Pharmacies, as well as coffee houses in New Orleans, were places to get medicinal alcohol. At the time, pharmacists believed that putting different botanicals into spirits might have some cure-alls, might be able to cure some ailments. And one in particular pharmacist, a very, very famous one by the name of Amity Pesho, is a key player in the story of the Sazerac cocktail. So what we would do is introduce our guests to this space. You would be able to walk around, take as many photographs as you like. I'm here to answer all of your questions. Uh, and then in a moment, about five minutes from now, I will shepherd us into the next room, which is our apothecary. So we're entering into Peixot's apothecary, or what we refer to as our bitters experience. So the importance of bitters in general is that if you think about that word cocktail, we now use it to describe any number of drinks that have different combinations of alcohol. But in the 1800s, the word cocktail was defined as a spirit of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. So if you want to be really technical, is it, it might not be considered a cocktail unless it has bitters. So here we are in what feels like an old apothecary shop. And there are these bins along the wall. Let's see, there's gentian, star anise, fennel, celery seed, angelica root, bitter orange peel. So all these different ingredients are the different botanicals, herbs, roots, flowers, dried citrus peels, all the different ingredients that would go into a proprietary blend of bitters. It's almost like a giant spice rack. Every pharmacist would have their own blend. It's kind of like if you have your own red sauce or somebody has their own barbecue sauce. There were bitters for all these different regions throughout the world, and there were different popular bitters in different areas. New Orleans had Peixot's bitters. It was the most popular brand of bitters here, and it is the longest surviving original brand of bitters in the city of New Orleans. And it is, in fact, one of the key ingredients in the Sazerac cocktail, so much so that in the legislation that was passed in 2008, making the Sazerac the official cocktail of New Orleans, it calls out Peixot's by brand name. You can't have a Sazerac without Peixot's bitters. You cannot bitters. have a Sazerac without Peixot's bitters. So, oh, sorry. So this room, this room is where we learn about the origin of Sazerac, that word, who it was, what it really comes from. And it starts with a gentleman by the name of Bernard Sazerac, and essentially the Sazerac de Forge family was making their own cognac. We have some uh, beautiful old bottles of the original Sazerac cognac behind me, as well as artifacts from the family itself. So these are, these are legitimate Sazerac family heirlooms. We were able to work with the descendants of that family to sort of build out this exhibit. You learn a lot about you know, the, how far back it stretches. So with Sazerac's cognac, which was imported to New Orleans and it was extraordinarily popular, so that a particular coffee house Remember Coffee House? Yes. So the particular Coffee House decided they were going to change the name to the Sazerac House, essentially to advertise to the community that if you wanted the Sazerac cognac that everyone loves so much, you could always get it at the Sazerac House. 
So this room really kind of traces the evolution of where that word is. It started as a family, became a brand of cognac, became a popular drinking establishment in New Orleans. And then inside that drinking establishment, we now see Sazerac Cognac. And just down the road, Mr. Antoine Peychaud was advertising you can get his bitters there. And if you remember the definition of a cocktail, spirit of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. Well, at the Sazerac house, if you asked for a brandy or cognac cocktail, they were going to reach for Sazerac cognac, sugar, water, and Peychaud's bitters. It starts to come together to form the cocktail. The cocktail will eventually evolve and turn into the company, and the company will eventually become the number one spirits producer in, the, in North America. One of the fun little surprises that occurs starting in this room are these magic mirrors. There are these huge mirrors that as you walk closer, it will sense your movement and trigger a fantastic animation and music. Incredible, so you don't even have to touch. It will do two different cycles. Um, and then each one of these mirrors will have one or two different visuals to just sort of surprise and delight. It is just like the Disneyland of cocktails, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. <laughs> so what, what's next? All right, let's take a walk over to the sample station and get a little taste of a Sazerac cocktail. And be careful that film will trigger if we hit any of the spots over there. Okay. As we continue down and around the subsequent floors, more amazing alcoholic artifacts were revealed, as well as Disney-esque interactive kiosks, including a virtual bar where I had a virtual cocktail, a whiskey mule at Miss Marie's Lounge. So I touch the screen. Hey, darling. How's it going? You look like you could use a drink. I'll just give you a minute, and if you need me, just give a holler. My name's Marie. A whiskey mule. Whiskey mule, you got it. <laughs> there were also more COVID-19 safe and kid-friendly sample stations, serving freshly squeezed lemonade for the kids. Finally, back on the ground floor, we were handed off to David Bach, production manager and head distiller of the Sazerac House, who led us through the distillation process. This is the production side of the Sazerac House. We are actually producing Sazerac rye whiskey. Um, this is what it takes. We tried to fit it all into this tiny, narrow space that you see around you. Um, behind you, Poppy, what you'll notice is this is our Sazerac rye bottling line. All the bottles of Sazerac rye that you purchase here at the Sazerac House are bottled here on site. Sazerac rye, like Rhiannon was saying, uh, is primarily three grains. For it to be a rye whiskey means that it needs to be at least 51% rye grains. Um, the other two grains in there are corn and barley. We bring those grains in right here in our large grain handler. It looks like a massive piece of equipment that can crush you. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we bring in a thousand pounds of grains right here in large super sacks and hang them over here over our auger turn the auger on and it'll drop them into one of our four cookers, cooking tanks, um, which are these really shiny pretty tanks right here. Inside these tanks will have warm water. What we're going to do is we're going to take that carbohydrate molecule that can be found in grains and we're going to break it into uh, simple and complex sugars. Once we have a big sugary sweet mess, we add yeast on top of that and the yeast eats the sugar and turns it into booze and bubbles, ethanol and CO2. So what happens is once the fermentation is done, we'll uh, send it down through the, through the bottom of the tank, over the doorway, and into our still. 
Sazerac rye is a double distillate, which means I'll take that spirit, run it through the still once, collect it over here, and then take it and put it back in the still and run it a second time. On that second time, the alcohol will come across in three phases, the heads, the hearts, and the tails. Um, once we have that good amount of hearts, it'll be about 160 proof. We'll add water to it to make it barrel strength, and then we'll pump it from these tanks into a barrel where it'll sit for six years. We have been here since October of 2019. Um, and so through that process, uh, we have been producing alcohol. Each one of those large tanks, one of our 1,000 gallon fermenters and cookers will produce one barrel of whiskey. So we're producing, not as fast as they do in Kentucky, but we're definitely producing alcohol and making it, uh, making the best spirit we can down here. And the great part is being able to see those streetcars come right behind the still as you're sitting here working. You know, it's really pretty to be in this location at the corner of Canal and Magazine. You get to see all the people walk by and ooh and ah, that pretty, pretty still. That was Rhiannon Enlil and David Bach of the Sazerac House. How did absinthe, one of the original crucial ingredients in a Sazerac, become available again in the U.S.? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the newly released Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How did absinthe, one of the original crucial ingredients in a Sazerac, become available again in the U.S.? The credit for that achievement goes entirely to native New Orleanian chemist Ted Brough. In 1993, a research lab colleague made a comment about absinthe that raised more questions than answers about the mysterious 
banned elixir. That set Bro out on a voyage of discovery that culminated with his distillation of the first legal absinthe available in America in 2007. Today, there are over 40 varieties of absinthe available widely, but contemporary absinthe drinkers have New Orleanian Ted Bro to thank for the new renaissance this vital Sazerac ingredient is enjoying now. I'm Poppy Tooker, and real absinthe makes for some good Louisiana drinks. Bitters have long been an essential ingredient in cocktails, but what about food? Rita Held spent several years as a culinary consultant for Angostura Bitters and has written extensively on cooking with bitters. She joined us by phone to explain how a few dashes of Angostura can help shake up countless recipes. Well, I liken it to something like a deep dark chocolate or dark roast coffee beans, or orange or lemon peel that adds this depth, and it it kind of enhances and stimulates flavor in food. And it's kind of a similar flavor to those things, or toasted nuts. You know how you toast a nut to give them a deeper, richer flavor? That's what Angostura does to lots of different recipes, and that's what I've had fun doing. Well, are the bitters actually used in cooking or as an accent after the dish is complete? They are definitely used in cooking. Angostura bitters are a very concentrated flavor, and by itself is, I think, a bit much for most of our palates. I liken it to something like maybe fish sauce that you would never eat by itself, but you would put it in a recipe, and that's exactly how I use Angostura, in a recipe, in a sauce, a marinade, a salad dressing, tomato sauces, lots of wonderful combinations that are perfect for Angostura bitters. I've heard that Angostura bitters can be used in the same way that we use hot sauce in Louisiana. Is that a fair comparison? I don't think so. Um, I know there's lots of different flavored hot sauces, but I would never compare them. That heat is what gives the spark to the recipes. With Angostura, the spark is this deep, rich, bitter flavor that I sort of liken to umami. Not that the flavor is the same, but that it enhances the flavor of food. You know, when you add a splash of soy sauce to stir fry, whoa, it's a whole new dish. And it's very similar to bitters in that respect. What I love to do is add Angostura to ketchup. I am a ketchup lover going way back. And ever since I've been working with Angostura bitters, I cannot eat ketchup without adding a splash of it to my ketchup, whether it's for meatloaf or hamburgers or whatever I'm using it for. I love it. So it can be used in every course from appetizer through dessert? I would say so. For instance, I have a wonderful recipe with a lemon garlic shrimp that you could use as an appetizer. You could probably definitely use it in uh, little meatball appetizers, pork, beef. It goes great with that kind of thing. Marinated chicken breast. Now that uses soy sauce and some sherry cooking wine. 
as well as bitters, and then a little bit of cinnamon. It's just a really nice marinade that gives kind of a unique flavor to grilled chicken breast. And what about beef? Oh, yummy. I make great hamburgers that I mix in with, you know, how you would do a meatloaf, and you put a little egg and um, maybe celery, onion, that kind of thing. You put a splash of bitters or two, maybe a teaspoon or so, in that mixture, and then that's what you fold into the ground beef mixture. And it just gives it punch that it wouldn't otherwise have. And how does it make that savory sweet switch? Okay. For instance, I have a banana crumble recipe that um, I did. You normally might put something like a dark chocolate in there. Well, this is just like a peach crumble. What gives the bitter flavor is the crumble. So there's breadcrumbs, brown sugar, cinnamon, and that's all toasted in the oven with the bananas. And it's that toasty flavor that bring, and the Angostura that brings out a wonderful comparison and contrast with bananas, sweet bananas. So the bitters get mixed up in the breadcrumbs in this recipe that yeah. goes on the crumble. Yeah, and then in a buttery sauce that gets poured over the warm crumble as you're eating it. Yum. It almost sounds like a baked bananas foster. That's a great way to put it. Actually, a scoop of ice cream or two wouldn't be bad on top. I want to thank you so much for sharing all of these cooking with bitters secrets with us. My pleasure. That was Rita Held, culinary consultant and bitters expert. Whether they're used in cocktails or cooking, it seems like everything is better with bitters. Maybe you're ready to try your hand at blending your own homemade batch. It's not as hard as you think. All you need are a few ingredients and a little bit of patience. First, you need a base spirit. This needs to be very high proof in order to guarantee your bitters a long shelf life and provide maximum extraction from the dried ingredients. Everclear or any grain alcohol will work perfectly without adding any additional flavor. As you become more adept at making bitters, you may want to try 151 rum or even a high-proof bourbon. Your flavoring ingredients need to be dried. Herbs, fruit, fruit peels, even flowers are all fair game. Combine up to six ounces of dried elements with about a quarter liter of base spirit in a screw top jar. Once a day, every day, shake the jar thoroughly. After a couple of weeks, begin checking the success of your infusion by rubbing a few drops between your hands and then deeply breathing in the scent between your cupped palms. After three to four weeks, you'll have reached maximum infusion. Strain thoroughly through cheesecloth and store in a small dropper bottle for easy use when making recipes or cocktails. If you like, you can dilute your extraction with equal parts water, allowing you to use more without overpowering your favorite food or drink. The bottom line, have fun.
and bottoms up. <laughs> to get a copy of the Basic Bitters recipe and other delicious Louisiana Eats suggestions, visit our website at poppytooker.com. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you'd like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredients with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Thank you.